I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us on our podcast, Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette. You might know me from my radio show, Breakfast with the Beatles, on Boston Radio for a number of years, and I'm here with my co-host, the great David Gallant, Boston Beatles professor at Suffolk University. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Chachi. I'm doing just great. It's a pleasure to be here because we're very excited about our guest this morning, Mr. Philip Norman. We've known him for years and years and years. And back in 1981, I loved the book Shout when it came out. I still uh, love the book. I'm a big fan, have multiple copies, and we're excited to have Philip Norman here today. Right, David? Absolutely, Chachi. I'll, <clears throat> in a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how that book has, has made me partly what I am today. Well, it is a great book, and he's written so many books in his life. And I got to tell you, I wish I was a writer. I'd have a lot of fun. I love writing, although I'm a terrible writer. But Mr. Norman has a new book out, a book about my favorite Beatle, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beatle, published by Scribner. And we're so excited to have Mr. Norman with us, direct from the UK. Hello, Philip Norman. How are you? Hello, fine. Thank you very much. Nice to see you both. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and uh, we're excited about your new book, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beatle, as I said, published by Scribner. And uh, you've written about the Beatles collectively, John and Paul, and now George. How does Where does this book lie in uh, your canon of writing about the Beatles? Was this your favorite of all all three books? I don't really have a favourite. I mean, being a writer is not a very nice life, and you always end up with the feeling that you could have done better or realise you've made a silly mistake on the second page. (laughs) You read 500 times and didn't think had a mistake on it. Uh, It's no life, as the the writer A.O. Kennedy once said, of the writer's life. But in this case, I never thought I would write about George because I really, for years, accepted the sort of general view as George as being rather sort of misanthropic and miserable amazingly although he was one of the foremost the foremost blessed beings of the 20th century um and in a way you have to write one book to get the impetus to write the next one so i wrote the john book because i i did know john a little bit and then i knew yoko was well after john's death but i really had to write the book about john to find out something about paul and then really i had to write the book about paul plus the biography of Eric Clapton and I did to really see what a lot there was to say about George. A lot of it in a sort of a very happy way. And he really did seem to have a, a rather sort of uh, overlooked and sidelined life on the inside, whereas on the outside, he seemed to be this blessed being with its stupendous good fortune. But inside, he had a lot to put up with. Well, we, we all kind of knew that John was a walking contradiction. He'd say one thing one day, the next day it'd be something completely different. But from reading the George, your new George book, he was a walking contradiction as well, more so than even Paul and Ringo. John seems completely straightforward (laughs) compared to George, because almost everything about George was contradicted by something else, as you say. Mm -hmm. So, Mr. Norman, I think that one thing I, I often tell my students is that within the group, George held that really not by his own accord, right, but through accident of birth, he held that position in the group of being the baby. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, but being the youngest in a family of four myself, 
you do have a unique perspective that the others don't, especially when when you have John and Paul in the band. And if I, if I go back to the Derek Smoltz character in, in Spinal Tap, Byron and Shelley are there competing with each other. Where's, where's room for another voice? And But that perspective, I think, is very unique for George because if you're the, the, the quiet one in one way or that's put on you, you're also the most observant, right? And you might be able to get away with things uh, that the others couldn't because they're in such the limelight. Is that, I mean, not that we get in too much of the, of the psychological dynamic of being the youngest child, but does that really play into a lot of what uh, George both internalized and then spoke about later that, that he had that unique position within the group? Well, I think uh, the, he was obviously very spoiled because his three siblings were all, well, his, uh, two of them were quite a bit older. The third one was just a little bit older. But, and he had been spoiled by these very, very nice parents. I mean, his father really had very little money uh, as, as a Liverpool bus driver. But they managed to buy him this fantastic, prestigious guitar, a Hochner president. And it also perhaps explains a sort of awful kind of tactlessness that George displayed throughout his life. He didn't really have to watch what he said. He could get away with that. What I would also say is that class runs through England today, but in the late 50s, it, it absolutely percolated every level of life. And George really was a very working class. And John and Paul, John certainly was very much middle class. Paul was kind of honorary middle class because under the peculiarities of the British class system, nurses were honorary middle class and Paul's mum was a nurse. And that led it also contributed to George's always feeling slightly under attack. George had a, a John Adams terribly, a very good woman, his aunt Mimi, terribly snobby. Whenever George went to John's, which Aunt Mimi's house to where John was living, he was always criticised, firstly for his accent, his very, very broad liberal accent, and also for his, he was very outrageous. He was very adventurous in his dress, despite looking, he was only sort of 14 when he started really going around with John and Paul. And despite his tremendous youth and childlike appearance, he wore the most outrageous clothes. That really got on Aunt Mimi's head. So it was the first time he really felt discriminated against, not just for being the, the kid, but also for the way he spoke and the way he looked. Even even though he he attended the same school as Paul and 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 Nell, right? That Liverpool Institute. Uh, we do cover that quite a bit in class. The 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 definition, your defining character because of your of your social status. Even though there were the attempts in post war and the Butler Education Act to sort of level those things out, but we know that a lot of the the promises of that type of equality through education were fairly empty and hollow. And I can understand then how, how George felt that way and maybe compensated a bit by the over-the-top sartorial nature and really prefiguring what, what, what punks did with fashion, right, to overcome either their Later on, impoverished yeah. roots, and right? Also, the, part of that sort of post past of that, they went, Paul and George went into the same school, but it had the sort of appearances of what we in England called a public school, mm -hmm. yeah an elevated private school. Right. But there wasn't actually much sort of class snobbery at that school because any clever boy of any class could get to what was called a grammar school. But George, his rebellion, he, he really derived no benefit from his education whatsoever except a slight knowledge of uh, sort of Gothic windows, you know, which came in very useful later on when he had his huge Gothic folly called Friar Park. The only preparation homework I ever saw by George 
was a sort of a display of different Gothic windows with explanations, which was about the only sort of good schoolwork he ever did. There wasn't there wasn't necessarily the push or the expectation to see a life beyond that school as as maybe maybe may have hoped or when John did go to our college or even Paul getting through certain exams to maybe go on to uh, uh, to teacher college that that really wasn't George's world at all right and he could have he wasn't necessarily compromising when he when he picked up the guitar that might have been a short stint to try to be a a, a laborer or a craftsman but. That really wasn't going to be there, but he felt confident about that, I suppose. He had tried to be an electrician. Um, he wanted to be a window dresser at a department store because that seemed a sort of nice, cushy job. Mm-hmm. But the, that post had been filled, so he had to become an apprentice electrician, which did actually come quite in use, come in useful later on at the Cavern Club when the, the damp coursing down the walls, putting in all, all these am- electric amplifiers in dire peril. George could fix an amplifier. John, I mean, John couldn't even make a cup of tea. Regardless. <laughs> and and the, the one thing that uh, I always found appealing to uh, about George was his sense of humor. And I wonder who, if he got it from his mom more than his dad. Certainly it started with the I don't like your tie comment to George Martin and then all the way even to his posthumously released album called Brainwashed and songs like P2 Vatican Blues, uh, this song. I mean, he had a he had a really great sense of humor. Am I correct? But he he, he did, but he couldn't control it. That John and Paul were both very very quick witted. So was Ringo when he came along. But they knew when to hold back. Their their pitch was perfect. George's pitch was sometimes awful. I mean, when he said to George Martin, "I don't like your tie." That was in response to George Martin at their interview saying, I'm going to listen, you can listen to the playback. If there's anything you don't like, tell me, George. Well, I don't like our guy, I'm start. A&R men, producers were called A&R men in those days, were complete, they were gods. And they were prima donnas and they determined everything about the acts they signed. An ordinary sort of A&R man in that era would have walked out if someone had said that to him about his time. Fortunately, future of Western culture, George Martin had a sense of humor. Well, maybe because George Martin produced Peter Sellers and some comedy records, The Goons and all that, he was open to that kind of humor as others might not have been, as you say. Yes, he was a very exceptional person to be in that sort of job because he was a classical, classically trained musician who'd also produced comedy records. So that was a perfect person to be the Beatles producer. But at the time, it seemed bizarre, but it turned out perfect. Well, he, he mentioned that he liked, uh, because of his work, he really liked irreverent people. This is what really comes out clearly even from the anthology interviews. And the, the, a piece that shortly follows after that is, is the, the Beatles, Beatles arrival in America and George's classic one liner, which seems to fall into perfect natural improvisational comedy sequencing. The press conference at JFK where the American press are wondering, they're skewering them. Are you going to get a haircut when you're here? And I tell my students that subject, that, that is subtext of, are you going to be a man? Are you going to grow up? You're going to give me a haircut when you get here. And, and, and George follows in saying he had one yesterday. And so after they, they say a few lines and, and it's almost a scripted. I had one yesterday and they all agree it's true. And I freeze frame it there and, and tell the students that. What is most shocking, if you look at George, is this is a young man who just had a haircut. And that sort of overwhelming shock and awe, if you will, of the press and then the the culture at large, that that can be someone who just got a haircut. That line alone 
is I, I ask students to then think of George's humor there and, and what it's doing, because it's, it's a surgical strike, really, against the press. And do you see this? They in, love it. They love it. They love it. They love it. Yes, they love it. And, and to hear it, even in some of his early songs, that you can almost draw a line before he gets really interior. You can draw a line through some of that sort of cynicism about love or relationships from don't bother me all the way, uh, all the way through, really. Well, quite a, a vein of, of irritability, actually. You don't bother me. So it's first, first up. But it's, it's true that in fact, what his first wife, Patty Boyd, said was that he was very, very funny and very, very sweet and very, very sort of straightforward until he learned to meditate. That's when his problem started, which is not usually what meditation is supposed to do for you. Well, it, it's, it, it's, it's supposed to cure your irri ir irritability <laughs> instead of amplifying there it. There's a contradiction. Only George can become more irritable after he learns to meditate. <laughs> Only George can rail against the material world and then write the first song complaining about income tax. Exactly. Only George can rise to the sheer nobility of, of uh, organizing the concert for Bangladesh and also break the first law of Beetledom, which is you don't sleep with another Beatles wife. And that's what George does with Ringo's first wife, Maureen. Where, where was that? Where, where was that law written, Philip? I, I don't. Is that the first law of Beetledom? I, I thought it was maybe similar to The Godfather: "Don't take sides against the family." Uh, that's right. Or perhaps it was on one of the tablets that Moses brought down. I don't know. Thus saith, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Norman, here we are. It's next year. It will be sixty years with the Beatles since they arrived in America. It's already sixty years there in the UK, as they were around in '63. So. Where, where were you in 1963, and what was it like living where you were, uh, right there at the back in the backyard of the Beatles? And did you ever see them live? Uh, tell us about your childhood with the Beatles. Well, uh, in fact, I first heard them in 1962. They were on a, their records were on a BBC record program. You didn't have DJs in those days. You had announcers, and the, the BBC announcer in his cut glass accent put a certain sort of edge of mockery into saying this next one's by the Beatles and it was not going to be due. And it's certainly quite weird, actually. And, you, and for the, a band to be called that seems suicidally ill-chosen as a name. Of course, in the end, they made Beatles mean something other than a crawling bug. The first meaning of a Beatle now is one of them. But in those days, they were breaking every rule, really, from the beginning. I can remember very well hearing it on a transmitter radio in a farmhouse in the Fens, very wild part of Eastern England, where I was on a, a local newspaper and very, very miserable because the life was so boring. <clears throat> but it was really the winter, that winter of 62, 63, which was absolutely Arctic snowfall, very unusual for Britain. And a lot of people couldn't go out. They just had to stay in. <clears throat> and the Beatles appeared on a, a show called Thank You, Lucky Stars, and they butchered the whole nation, saw them. And then you could see they were something amazing. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael Miltwolf, travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue on Past Tense. You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milton and Dave, 
respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for milk. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are for the I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed, but I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcast or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. You're listening to Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette. And here we are where the Beatles are now releasing their last song, 60 years later, called Then and Now. And what are your thoughts on the release of this upcoming record coming out? And it doesn't surprise me that they're just as strong as ever 60 years later. Well, you have to remember, perhaps you, you don't remember, but I certainly remember that the, the absolute belief about pop groups, they were called beat groups in those days, or any pop artist in Britain, was that they were lucky if they lasted for about six months. Mick Jagger, at the age of 20, was asked many times what he thought he'd be doing when he was 30. The idea of him still doing it in exactly the same silly voice when he was 80 would have been bizarre, surreal. And they themselves thought that. They believed it. That was why Lennon and McCartney in particular were always sort of passing their songs on to other performers. They thought that one day their, their voices wouldn't fit and their faces wouldn't fit and they would have to be jobbing songwriters like Lieber and Stoller. And, and to think that any of these people would still be around, particularly the Beatles, all this time later, creating just as much excitement and appealing to very, very young people because of this extraordinary charm, this charm that ca- captures you know, a child of two or three years old today just as much as it captured as in the 60s. We just we just finished covering A Hard Day's Night in, in Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston. And the what you're saying is I, I, I highlight to the class when when George is mistakenly going into the the marketing executive's office, Simon, and he's 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 mistaken for an actor trying to sell product to hip teens of that time. And before he goes into that inner office, he, he looks at that that piece of metallic corporate executive art that is <laughs> that has been purchased for the offices there. And he toys with it and says, you don't see too many of these around nowadays, do you? And I sort of stop that and say, well, maybe only George could have pulled off that line because now we're going to go into a scene which is absolutely about the expectation that all pop music, pop groups, and pop art would be disposable and replaceable. And with within a matter of months, let's take advantage of this now before it all goes away. And I think that's part of the genius of the film and George's role in it, that that hindsight being 2020, it never went away. It only It only got greater, but the expectation, even a joking way, was that you are here today and maybe even gone today, and not even until tomorrow. But it took it took something to really make it stick. He also had to say the line that he hated about oh, that's dead grotty. He didn't actually use the word grotty. That was his own own. Yes. And um, yeah. he, he, he ground his teeth. John, remember, ground his teeth with despair when yeah. he did the line. Worse yet is that it became popular or got into the hands of Princess Margaret, right, or into her mouth. Well, there we are. And the royal finally even sort of getting through to the royal family. But that was another moment that George's terrible monumental tactlessness 
or perhaps just refusal to sort of behave himself when after the premiere of the film, there was a, a reception at the Dorchester Hotel, the Princess Margaret and her husband, Lord Snowden, who were the trendy royals at the time, came for a drink and they just lingered. They loved talking to all these rockers. And George said to the producer of the film, Walter Shelton, no, I'm, I'm, we're stark. No, you can't eat until she goes, George. It's royal protocol. <laughs> we're starving. And Walter says, we can't eat until you leave. Again, Princess Margaret thought it was charming. Another practically mother might not have. Yes, that's un unbelievable. And when through the years, I've always felt that George and Ringo kind of bonded versus because they were all it was seemed like versus John and Paul. George and Ringo would room together a lot of times when they were on tour. And it seemed like he had built this relationship with Ringo even helped him out more than the other two when they broke up and provided songs and for Ringo hit records. And so it was, was, am I correct in thinking that George and Ringo really bonded outside of the Lennon and McCartney thing? Strangely enough, it was the same in the Stones, that the, the front row were middle class or aspiring middle class and the rhythm section were working class. It was just the same in the Beatles as well. And Ringo had no problem with this. He had a sort of a deeply philosophical nature and just the fact that he was in the shadow nearly all the time didn't bother him. As he said, I learned, I learned to play chess during Sergeant Pecker, Pepper, meaning the recording. But this sort of class thing, you just don't think of that with the Beatles. You think that the Beatles sort of broke down class barriers, which of course they did in the air, or rather inverted them. But in the first instance, they were very much sort of bound by the old sort of still Victorian norms of, of and, and I and I think here that now, I mean, later on you had George Martin apologizing to George for for not treating him better, and even Paul. I can imagine what Paul said to George, and as his life was coming to an end, apologizing for the way that he treated George and wrote him off in terms of his songwriting and his music. Well, I mean the the internal politics of the Beatles. I mean, he made the Kremlin understand and Stalin seemed sort of sim simple and alliances were always changing. And of course, right back to when they were very young, when George and Paul, because they went to school together, used to go on holiday together in the school holidays. But then when George became an apprentice, he didn't have school holidays, but John had art college holidays. So Paul and John would go on holiday together, leaving George out. Right back then, there was a sort of competition going on between them. And, of course, later on, one minute, it wasn't only George. George could cherish a grudge, but then Paul would, have to, so, would suddenly be annoyed with, with George, and then John would be annoyed with George, and then it would be all right. It was, a, it was a sort of, like a sort of menage a trois, really. <laughs> I, I think that Paul put it well in the anthology when he was being a little bit pushed to try LSD. When the, I guess the forward experimenters at that time would have been George and John after the, 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 the dinner party with the dentist. And Paul was sort of seen as, as lagging back. And he said he felt a lot of peer pressure. And he says, peer pressure, the Beatles, can you imagine the peer pressure? Because whatever you did, was going to radiate around the globe. And I, I think of that when you mentioned the, the inner politics of the Politburo or Stalin's, Stalin's Russia. Don't forget, this. there was this extraordinary unity between them because only they understood what it was like to be one right. of them. And that was, really, was defined really as the, the psychologists call it the group mind. Usually it works in a negative way and sort of more mob scenes on the street. 
but they just absolutely were, were unified and they, they almost moved in unison. And that was mm-hmm. what made the breakup such a tragedy was this sort of abs- incredible closeness. Like the time when they were at the back of this van during a snowstorm and the, and the windshield broke and they, all they had to keep warm was a bottle of whiskey in the back. And they would lie on top of each other like penguins and take turns to be the one on bottom. They were sharing money. Right. Yeah, they, they, they had the whiskey to keep themselves warm and each other to keep themselves warm, right? In in rotation, the wrinkle, the way he described the way they would stack and then and then rotate, basically, to do that. And that's the, how penguins operate. That's how penguins <laughs> operate. Is, is, <laughs> uh, your, your next venture, right? The book on penguin, penguin psychology. No, I, I always go penguin fan, you know. Yeah, I, I always said the penguins. We could have been called the penguins. I always go back to the little satirical magazine here in the states, the, the National Lampoon, that had the headline way back in the day: "John Paul elected Pope George Ringo upset." <laughs> <laughs> One thing that you and I talked about was George coming from a complete family unit, as opposed to Ringo and Paul and John. And then you, when they, when George was sick prior to the Ed Sullivan show. Louise took care of him. Louise would take care of him as a young baby. And and then Louise and George had a falling out. And there's all these rumors that George cut her off financially. What's the insight on on what happened between Louise and George? I know Louise shopped the Beatles records where she lived in America, did a lot for the band, but they had a falling out, correct? They did. I mean, he 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 gave her an allowance. I mean, she was she was the, the cut out to be the member of the family who was really interesting because she married a mining engineer and lived all over the world. But she was in the end in Benton, Illinois, and that was where George became the first Beatle to go to America. This was just before they break through, and he spent time with Louise and her children, with Daniel's brother Peter as well, and he even temporarily joined a a band called the Four Vests. That makes us giggle in England because vest here means undershirt. Of course, you it means waistcoat. And indeed, somebody said to the leader of the four vests, that new guy's pretty good. You should hang on to him. <laughs> but he, that was an example of George actually being more appreciated in other bands, even the, when he was moonlighting in another band in, in Liverpool, when the, when the then quarrymen were in danger of sort of falling apart. Other bands were always nicer to him. Later on, it was the band who treated him with real respect. And never quite ever got that. John finally praised something, the deep, which was within you without. So that was very rare, actually, to be praised. And, and when John was murdered, I mean, George and John weren't, weren't exactly on speaking terms. So. How did that affect George, that they really didn't settle their differences at the time of John's death? Well, John said that, because George, there again, the quiet Beatle and the most self-defacing one of the band, in a contradictory way, becomes the first one to release an autobiography. It's not really an autobiography. It's a sort of a collection of his reproduction of his song lyrics with a bit of commentary. But John was complaining that he only got two mentions, very few mentions in this. Actually, there were about 30 mentions of John. <laughs> so George really had nothing to reproach himself for. But of course, they, they both would have sort of looked back and realized that all these little squabbles down the years had been so petty. And then something so obscene and so dreadful like this happened. Of course, the world was shocked. That could not have compared with their own shock. 
Well, I, if I'm not mistaken, maybe I, I may have the time frame wrong, but would uh, 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 George's um, all those years ago debut prior to Paul's here today? Yeah, well, it was the first one I was aware of. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I mean, he he came out with maybe the first very touching song tribute that was actually not a bad pop song at the same time, and and kind of covered things and. And yes, a day late and a dollar shy, as we say, but maybe this is way of coming to terms, coming to terms with it. So you have your squabbles up to that point. Certain things are put to rest. But, you know, if you do have the makeup call, maybe it doesn't matter when it happens. But that seemed to have happened fairly while everything was still fresh for all of us. You know, also, George then goes and plays a, a guitar um, on that horrible song by John called How Do You, by Paul called How Do You by John called How Do You Sleep About Paul, who had nothing to lose sleep over at all. Mm. And that sort of starts John as a sort of nuclear strike. But actually, the, the the despised first album by Paul's band, Wings, has a, a track called Dear Friend, which is utterly sweet about John. I'm sure if John had ever heard that, he would not have written a horrible song about it. It was just completely, yeah. there was a line in which saying, didn't understand the thing that was between them as different characters. But we could always sing. Right. I couldn't think that could be better expressed. Right. Well, Mr. Norman, such a pleasure to speak to you. I know you're, you're on your book tour right now. Do you enjoy uh, having these conversations? And uh, Well, this one, of course, because it's a nice conversation. With your <laughs> lips are knowledgeable. It's just like having a chat in a pub without a drink, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's early in the morning here in America, but we wanted to make time for you because... Both Professor Gallant and myself were big fans of yours. I have all your Beatle books, and you've written so many books. You started out, you wanted to be a novelist, and then you did a lot of rock biographies. And Do you enjoy covering the music aspect of, 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 your, of your writings? Well, these books are terribly, terribly hard to write. I mean, hellishly difficult, bordering on masochism, to make sense of a story that has to have things like the record went to number 12 and Billboard Top 100. Trying to say that in an interesting way is really hellishly difficult. Um, <laughs> to convey the excitement of music and what music sounds like. People say, oh, you shouldn't bother. You should let people listen to the music. No, I want to write words that let you know how the music sounds. Well, um, and also mm -hmm. getting the real story as well is, of course, is a problem in itself. It must be easy, though, easier for you. It's just you. You don't have three partners telling you how to write or what to do. But listen, it's a pleasure to have you with us on Thank Get you. Back to the Beatles. Professor, any any last questions, perhaps? Well, maybe a, a final thought that circles back to what I mentioned uh, previously. I think it was in discussing greatness or permanence in, in art. Uh, Matthew Arnold had, had said that it takes the, the power of the man and the power of the moment, right? And the Beatles didn't necessarily pick their moment, but they did a lot with it. And so, Mr. Norman, I would say you, the timing of Shout could not have come at a better time for me. I was I was in my last year of high school. The the publication, the release here in the U.S. came not that long after after John Lennon's murder. And at the same time as I picked this up at a at a bookstore, two stops down in a mall from where I was working. It was really transformative to read because at the same time there was the release of the complete Beatles documentary, maybe the first full video documentary about a, about a rock band. And then I heard of these things called Beatles conventions in, in Boston where I was going to be going to college. And those three things together really made me realize this is a, 
uh, phenomenon. It's not just history, but something that can be studied and even taught. I was in, an English major, or they would say in England, I read literature. And so it really was that something to study. And so it was really, really transformative to me. And and I would not be teaching this class today without without shout. So I was mentioning to Chachi that in in our world, in university world, that you would probably be the, the, the provost or the provost of Beatles College. So thank you very much for all of I'd that like, work. I'd like, I'd like that with a nice house in the grounds, yes, please. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mr. Chips, exactly. <laughs> well, the book is thank called... Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. The book is called George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle, author Philip Norman published by Scribner. Mr. Norman, we only wish you the best, and we are so appreciative that you took the time out to speak to us. Thank you. Great great pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Well, that does it, Professor Gallant. That was interesting. We love Philip Norman. Great book. Well, Chachi, I mean, if if talking to us is is as comfortable as as chatting around the pub, maybe that's where I should move my class. Right? <laughs> we should take up residency twice a week at a at a at a pub in Boston. As maybe. long as the students are over twenty one. Yeah, suggest. that's difficult, right? With freshmen, it's difficult. I think the before they change, the laws should change. That's a whole different topic. Well, you're listening to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi Lopret, along with Beatles professor at Suffolk University, Mr. David Gallant. We thank our producer, Mr. David Yaz, and the Boston Podcast Network. Check out the Boston Podcast Network, all kinds of fantastic podcasts, and all under one roof. And you can hear them wherever you hear your favorite podcasts. We'll be back again very, very soon with another Beatle guest. And, of course, we have a pile of past episodes that you can listen to at any time. So on behalf of myself and Professor Beatle Professor David Gallant, David Yaz, have a great Beatle day. We'll see you next time on Get Back to the Beatles. Bye-bye. Get back, Jojo. Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrette at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.